The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to record these words of Scripture. We believe these words not only had power in the day that Matthew wrote them, but they have power this day because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray, send your Holy Spirit afresh upon us now. Open ears and hearts and minds. Open this word for us that we may be changed more and more to be like Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I am not fearful for the church's future. I am not fearful for the church's future. But lately, it's the question I get asked most often. All the questions, or at least many of them that seem to come my way, are phrased in different ways around the same question. Are we worried about the future of the church? I mean, I get it. We read the headlines. Headlines from this fall. Will the church survive COVID-19? Front page. How will the post-COVID church pay its bills? Front page. Or we read about research groups, like the Barner Research Group that put a study out last month that says that one in five churches will not survive the pandemic, based on their numbers, and one out of three Christians have already stopped going to church, and that includes even online church. But this is not the first time that America has fearfully asked the question, will the church survive? Does the church have a future? During the Second World War in 1942, the Atlantic Monthly published an article by an Episcopal priest named Father Bernard Bell. And Father Bernard titled his article, Will the Christian Church Survive? And this Episcopal priest had a pretty view grim, a pretty grim view of the future. He concluded his article with this sentence, the future of the church under God lies in no other hands than its own. I couldn't disagree with Father Bernard 
more. The future of the church lies not in our own hands. The future of the church lies in the hands of the one we celebrate today, Christ the King. I am not fearful for the church's future. Not because I look at our own statistics here and say we're doing pretty good. Not because I'm looking at the situational reality here at Christ Church and saying, I'm amazed at how the Lord has led us through. I am amazed. But my conviction that the church has a future has nothing to do with the situational reality of where we stand today. My conviction that the church has a future. The reason I am not fearful for the church's future is because of what Matthew 16 tells us. It banishes fear. And we must remember it today. Fear not. Jesus reigns. That's what Matthew 16 is telling us. Fear not. Jesus reigns. And fear not. It gets even better. Jesus' reign is being revealed by none other than the Father. The Father is revealing his Son's reign, life by life, person by person. And fear not, not only does Jesus reign, and not only is that reign being revealed by his Father, but fear not, Jesus is risen. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has won. Turn with me to Matthew 16, if you have your Bibles or your iPhones. Verse 13, we begin. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? See, we begin with this question which will lead us to the conviction, fear not, Jesus reigns. The question Jesus is asking here, who do the people say the Son of Man is, is being asked in front of a very important backdrop. We're told in verse 13, he's in Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you go to Caesarea Philippi today, you can even still see in the ruins that this was a town at the base of a hill and the hill was full of idols. It was a center of paganism, the whole backdrop, center of paganism. You had the Syrian god Baal being worshiped there. You had Pan being worshiped there, who was the fertility god and sort of the central god for so much of the Greco-Roman world. And then you even had the temple of Roma built on the top, which was meant to sort of give divinity and deity to the emperors of Rome. And not only did you have all this pagan backdrop in Caesarea Philippi, but you had a huge political backdrop, even in the name Caesarea Philippi. Because the town had actually been called Penea, after the god Pan. But when Herod, the king, built the temple of Roma, you hear this, a Jewish king, a Jewish puppet king, building a temple to Rome, his son Philip came along and then expanded the temple, made it bigger, and built up the town surrounding it. And then he decided to dedicate the whole region to Caesar, but he also slipped his own name in at the same time. So for Caesar Augustus, he called it Caesarea, but then he had to put his own name in there, Philippi. 
Caesarea Philippi. The backdrop of this question, who do the people say the Son of Man is, is in front of all of pagan worship, all of political realities. Jesus is asking the question intentionally in front of all the other alternatives. All the competing allegiances are standing right behind him when he asks this question. And he asks the question more personally to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? It's interesting in the Bible, you'd be surprised that the ratio of questions asked to Jesus and the number of questions Jesus asks to people who come to him is actually backwards from what you'd probably think. 307 times Jesus asks a person a question and only 187 times does a person come to Jesus and ask a question? More predominant in the Bible is Jesus asking us questions. And it's backwards in our mind, I think, in some ways, because I think in the modern worldview, we think the reality, any sense of spirituality and reality and, 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 and salvation will be found if we can get God to answer all of our questions. And don't be wrong, those questions are good questions we can ask about. Why is the world like this? How does the world get fixed? Why am I like this? You know, why is my brother like this? All those are good questions. But the truth is, the ultimate transformation of a human life is not going to come simply as God answers all of our questions. The true transformation comes as we answer the question God puts before us. And this question I would argue in verse 15, of all the questions Jesus asks, this is the most central question a human being can ever answer. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? With a backdrop of all of politics and all of pagan worship, and then even with the backdrop of the prophets, look at verse 14. What what do the disciples say when he asks? Who do the people say that I am? They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But as Peter and the disciples try to answer this question, who do you say that I am? They know that the answer is not going to be he's one of the prophets. They've walked with Jesus long enough to see that the way he lives his life, the things he says, the things he does, it just doesn't line up with a great Old Testament prophet. See, prophets of the Bible always point away from themselves. They say, look over here to God. Look at this. Jesus consistently keeps pointing to himself. The prophets in the Bible constantly say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus keeps saying, but I say to you. The prophets of the Bible are constantly, constantly saying the day of the Lord is coming. And what does Jesus keep saying? Mark chapter one, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't fit within any of these pagan deities, any of the political allegiances of their day, or even the prophets of the Old Testament. Here is someone completely different. Which is why in verse 16, Peter lands on it when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, the Christ 
is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach. And through exile, through political overthrows, through living under tyrants now like Rome, there was a hope that had grown in Israel based on the prophets, mostly in Isaiah, that one day the Lord would send his Messiah, his anointed one, his king, and he would save us. Peter lands on this because he continually sees Jesus doing things that lines up exactly with those messianic prophecies. Luke chapter four, for example, when Jesus comes to the synagogue in, in Nazareth, he's given the scroll to read, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, one of these messianic texts, the text pointing to this coming king. And what does Jesus do with the text? It says, he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, and they're expecting what every other rabbi would do, is to then talk about how we can recognize the day the Messiah comes. How, what will we be looking for? What are the marks of his character? What does Jesus do? The shortest sermon in history. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They've walked with Jesus for nearly three years, hearing him do and say these kinds of things. And the only, the only final answer they can come up with out of the mouth of Peter is, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the King. You're the anointed one we've been waiting for. I love how C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest conversion stories of the 20th century, perhaps, at least a conversion story that had most impact on so many within the 20th century, converted from atheism into Christianity, mostly through the conversations with J.R. Tolkien. Lewis would go on to write this about Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be some great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis writes. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Peter, confronted with Jesus, says you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. But here's where the fear comes in. Let's just call it out. We live in a secularizing age. We live in an age where it feels like less and less people are coming to Peter's conclusion. It feels like more and more people looking at the story and life of Jesus say, well, I don't know. And they look at Lewis and say, well, you know, Lewis's quote, that's good for Lewis, but I'm not convinced. And it creates a sense of fear within the church that we're losing ground, that maybe we're losing our ability to preach the gospel, that we're losing our strategy, 
that something has gone horribly wrong and we have messed things up to the point that somehow this whole thing is a house of cards about to come down on us. It causes us fear. And I think that gives a reason for the unhealthy level of angry political rhetoric we've seen through this election cycle from Christians. I expect angry political rhetoric from pagans. I expect better from the church. The reason we get so afraid in this political season, is it not true that many of our political Facebook posts, the root of them is that somehow maybe we fear the throne has become vacant? That somehow if we don't figure this out in our country, that the reign of Christ is threatened? Do we hear ourselves? Peter's confession, let me just say this clearly, if you hear nothing else today, Peter's confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Christ, does not make Jesus the Christ. Jesus has been the Christ for everlasting. Peter just finally caught up with reality. When we look at a world that doesn't know what to do with Jesus, it does not need and should not cause the church fear of the truth of Jesus' reign. But instead, we can realize there is work yet to be done because he is the king, he is the Christ, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As our Psalm 93 from the bulletin says this morning, ever since the world began, your throne has been established. You are from everlasting. Now, I really hit my first point, didn't I? Fear not, Jesus reigns. And that's probably right, to balance the sermon. That, that's the big point. But we also, church, are not to fear because not only does Jesus reign, but that reign is being revealed by none other than the Father himself. Look at what Jesus says in response to Peter's confession. Verse 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Which means your human ability, Peter, didn't figure this out. There was no great preacher that pointed this direction. There was no one who walked you through the four spiritual laws and made it happen. There was nothing that happened from human effort that brought you to this conclusion. This conclusion is yours solely because the Father in heaven has revealed it to you. It doesn't feel like that when we become Christians, does it? When we even grow in our faith, it often can feel like we, we took a big risk. We had to go through a big journey and it was really a decision we made. But things are not as they seem. What has happened every time a person comes to faith is that the Father in his gracious mercy has opened their hearts and revealed his Son. Every other worldview in this, in this world, every other religion tells us that if you're going to come to spiritual truth, you've got to 
go on a journey of self-discovery or climb a mountain or some kind of heroic feat or you know, grow in some sort of sense of personal morality. Only with Jesus are we told it's the Father alone that reveals that truth to a person. It's revealed by my father. It's the word apocalypto in the Greek. It means to pull back a curtain. The father pulls back the curtains. I was blind and now I see. I've come into reality. As John 15 verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will abide. It's the very heart of the gospel. It's the story of grace. The story of a God who does not stand afar off and wait for us to find him, but a God who comes searching for lost sinners. A father who leaves the 99 to find a lost sinner and reveal to that broken, hardened heart the truth of his son. And I know this can get us all bent and funny shapes in the church. Whenever you talk like this, everyone's like, oh, we're going to talk about predestination now. We want to get into a big doctrinal debate about the role of human decision and choice and God's sovereignty. And that's why we've got Father Jonathan Bales, who's somewhere here. You can call him and he'd love to sit down with you. And that's, that's a good discussion for another time, but don't get hung up on it. Rejoice in how it banishes fear. Because again, underneath this, in a secularizing world, we worry, how do we possibly get the world convinced of Jesus? Isn't that a root of fear behind it all? That we we look and say, Lord, how do we possibly make this happen? I know my limitations. I look at a hardened heart in this world. How do I do this? And the answer is, you don't. You and I have a role. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to live by faith. We're called to, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, give an account for the hope that is in us, but we don't convert a single soul. The Father must reveal his Son to a human heart. And we see it when we pay attention to our stories and the stories of others. I remember this kid in youth group named Justin. Justin, I was a youth pastor only for one year. It just really didn't take for me. I was a terrible youth pastor, but I had this one kid, Justin, in my youth group, and Justin's the kid that you just pray would leave and join another youth group. He was just awful, uh, and I I spent all my time trying to keep his hands off the girls and his hands off the guys, and he was belligerent and didn't want to be there, and I think he was really bored, and I prayed, Lord, take Justin away. Well, I went away after a year, And then I was called back two years later as a newly ordained priest and asked if I would come and baptize Justin because he'd come to faith in Jesus. And I knew in that moment the truth that it's the father that reveals the son because I had given up on this man. As Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The Father is 
in the world, revealing his son. Fear not. But finally, church, fear not, not only because Jesus reigns. Fear not only because that reign of Jesus is being revealed by none other than the Father himself. But fear not. Jesus is risen. When he speaks those words about the church in verse 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you know what's fascinating? Again, about the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi. Not only was it this pagan set of shrines and not only was it this political picture but also the hill was known to have these very dark shadowy caves and the pagan world of Jesus day believed that that was the gate to hell they believed that that was the entrance to Hades right there Jesus is standing in the mouth of hell and says This shall not prevail against you because I will prevail over hell. He says these words in Matthew 16, knowing what is coming, knowing the cost, knowing what it will take to bear our sins in his body, And to bear the punishment, the just punishment for our sins in his body. To take our death upon himself. He stands in the mouth of hell in Matthew 16 and says, just wait till you get only a few chapters away. And I will literally prevail over hell that hell will never prevail over you. The battle is won. He is the victor. In the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, speaking of the reign of God. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death, where's your victory, Paul says. Death, where's your sting? It has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. It's not a promise of invincibility. We know this. It's a promise that we will prevail. It's a promise, therefore, that we need not fear. As William Barclay famously says, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Or in the words of John 16, In this world, you will have trouble. Fear not. I have overcome the world, hell included. I am not fearful for the church's future. But lately, it's the question I get asked a lot. Fear not, little flock. Jesus reigns. Jesus is being revealed by his father in this world, one life at a time. And Jesus is risen from the dead. Father Bernard Bell's prediction 
was totally wrong. The decade that followed the Second World War saw a remarkable Christian revival and proved to be one of the healthiest seasons in the history of the American church. The church has a future, not because we've been creative during COVID. The church has a future because Christ is king. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.